Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus went away from there and reached you to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, and Canaanite women from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But it did not answer her a word. And his disciple came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even uh, the dog eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, being done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Amen. Amen and welcome. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor here. And uh, as you may have heard, if you've been hanging around, we're extending this short series called Great Faith for the rest of the month of January. But before we begin, I hope you'll just take a moment here with me to honor and recognize and celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Monday, of course, is MLK Day. And so we just want to take a moment to celebrate and honor him and remember his contributions and sacrifices on behalf. Uh, and for a more just and equitable society. Amen. So I hope that uh, this coming Monday, yeah, you'll take a moment and reflect and, and to give thanks uh, for his life. So, uh, but uh, yeah, let's just give a hand for that. How about that? Yeah, amen. All right. Feels uh, somehow appropriate right there. But uh, I am excited to continue this series today for a couple of reasons. First, we're doing this in conjunction with our global spiritual family called Every Nation. Hundreds of churches around the world during this month are going through this series, some longer, some shorter. Uh, and we do this from time to time, sometimes even with churches here uh, in the city. But along with that, I'm also especially excited to sort of regain some ground. Uh, I hope in your life and I think in the life, I hope in the life of the church of Jesus in general, because as we've seen and as we've said, the the doctrine uh, of faith, the whole area of faith, the idea of great faith has been used for some crazy things, maybe even been used to justify, maybe you've seen this, this has been you, uh, you've seen it used to justify that person on TV asking you to fund something crazy or outlandish, and if you've ever heard that or wondered, well, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Well, you're not alone. And other times, uh, the idea of someone's faith has been used to justify why they got what they wanted, and maybe why you didn't get what you wanted. And if you've seen that, or you felt that, and you wonder, well, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Well, you're not alone because the truth of the matter is there is a really important why this whole area, the doctrine of faith, of great faith is important, and it's this. Great faith is important because the only times that the New Testament writers, those who either knew Jesus personally or who interviewed those who knew him personally, the only time that the the gospel writers ever record that Jesus was ever amazed at or by a human being. The only times he was ever stunned by or marveled at a human being 
was always in connection with their great faith or their lack of it. So if you've ever wondered, well, what does all this faith stuff have to do with Jesus? The answer is, it has everything to do with Jesus. We see that Jesus cares about your faith. He desires for us to live lives of great faith. And yet, as we're going to see today, the truth of what great faith is may not always look like what you think. I've got a friend named Jim. Uh, any, anybody here named Jim, by the way? It's okay. You can raise your hand. A few, maybe a few Jims. There's a bunch of Jims in first service. Okay, well, that, that, you're not him. But um, anyway, you're my friend too, but you're not this, this friend, Jim. But anyway, this friend, Jim, uh, is a remarkable person. Some of you may know him. Uh, he was a baseball player at UT, and he came to Christ yeah, uh, while I was doing campus ministry there many years ago. And he came to this church one Sunday after a friend of his basically made him promise to come. And so he came, but he came hungover from partying so hard the night before I had on 6th Street. And he came and he drove up in the parking lot on his big fancy Mustang and hung over and he actually vomited in the parking lot on the way in. But he came and he gave his life to Jesus that day in church. But while he was a great athlete, uh, Jim had this like superpower and, and he, he was a magician or as he made me call him, an illusionist. Not someone who dabbled in anything, you know, dark at all, but someone who was deaf with sleight of hand and doing not magic tricks, but as he made me call them, illusions. Yes, and he started off his future career just sort of helping getting crowds together at UT, and now, this is true, he tours the world doing stage shows. He's remarkable, but I'll never forget one of the first times he was ever out on campus, and he was doing uh, uh, not a magic trick, but an illusion, yes. And one girl, seeing this crowd gathered on campus, walked up, sort of poked her eye over and poked her head over, saw this illusion, something she thought was impossible. She got freaked out, and she yelled at the whole crowd gathered there, y'all are all going to hell, (laughs) and walked off. And we talked about it later, and Jim said, I loved it. I'm like, I'm sure you did. But he said, I love creating that kind of tension in a moment because I love revealing to people that maybe what they thought was true wasn't true all along. So he said, I can in turn reveal a deeper kind of truth. And I want you to know, that's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing right in this story today. He's pressing on us to see and live within what I'm going to call here, and here it is, the inherent and contradictory tensions of a life of great faith. The inherent contradictory tensions of a life of great faith. That means that sometimes living this life of great faith doesn't look like what you think. And maybe you came in here thinking faith, you know, uh, looks like this. But I hope by the time we're done today, you'll think maybe faith looks like that. Let's begin here in verse 21 in the story. It says, And Jesus went away from there, we'll come back to where there was, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these two cities, they mean like nothing to you, but they meant everything to Jewish people in that day, and especially to Jesus' disciples, because Tyre and Sidon, were not Jewish cities. They were Gentile cities and home to Gentiles, non-Jews, who especially hated Jewish people. As a matter of fact, the historian Josephus, who lived during this time, he records that nowhere in that day was there more animosity of and hatred towards Jewish people than Tyre and Sidon. Basically, it's a nice way of saying that Jesus and his crew 
We're on the wrong side of the tracks. And so, therefore, into this powder keg of ethnic conflict, into this, in the very streets of this uh, ticking time bomb of racial and religious conflict, Jesus goes and calls his disciples to follow him there. And by the way, how many of you know, following Jesus doesn't always mean we live or work or worship in safe spaces or places. All he says to us is, follow me. Follow me. Verse 22, and behold, that means look. Look who it is, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. And if you've ever been in a traumatic situation where you don't know up from down or left from right or where to start or begin or whatever, you know now how this woman feels. If you've ever had a child who's so uh, discouraged or so out of control or so disturbed that it's breaking you, now you know how this woman feels. The writer says here, she is crying, but that's not what it means. The Greek literally means she was shouting at Jesus and her actions right here show us the first inherent and contradictory tension of a life of great faith and here it is we'll put it like this that great faith is not always respectable but it is always visionary not always respectable but always visionary and maybe you came in thinking today man the point of faith somebody invited me today to this church and you know your paradigm is sort of you know church is just here to make people a little nicer Make them a little more well-behaved, you know, sort of polish the dust, you know, dust the rust a little bit. And, but that's not at all what's happening here. Because what does this woman say? Have mercy on me. What does she call him? Come on. Oh, Lord, son of David. This term came to refer over the centuries in Jewish culture to the Messiah, the one who would be descended from Israel's greatest king in their past, the King David, who during his lifetime brought peace into the land, healed the land. And again, over time, son of David came to refer to David's descendant, who would be the Messiah, who would come in Israel's darkest hour and put everything right. And therefore, this, as it says, this Behold, come on, Canaanite woman, not a Jewish man. Matthew calls her this so you won't miss it. This woman is screaming at Jesus in public. Oh, great king, true Messiah, would you help me? What's she doing here? She is seeing what the respectable religious establishment of the day The Pharisees could not. Because the entire chapter, if you go back, Matthew 15, and read it up to this point, the whole chapter is about the respectable Pharisees, repudiation of Jesus. The entire chapter shows the respectable Pharisees ridiculing Jesus because he broke their respectable traditions. And he wouldn't wash his hands properly. Now you're like, okay, that was the punchline. Yes, because there was a right way and a wrong way to wash. And that may not be a big deal to you now, but it was a big deal to them then because their culture, their whole religion was built on respectability. And Jesus, can you see here, he's not trying just to upend respectability as the goal of faith, but to smash it all together. And here's how you can know. Look at how he responds to the respectable Pharisees at the climax of their confrontation. Just before this passage, he says, here's his mic drop moment. He says, to eat with unwashed hands 
does not defile anyone. Of course, to which every teenager would ever say, amen, right? I mean, mom, dad, I mean, come on, like, just pass the pizza, you know, like, they're, they're good. But no, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, you know, your kids are going to quote this to you. Mom, dad, the Bible says it. Anyway, but look what happens in the very next verse. Look where he goes immediately and next, next words. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to Tyre inside him. The point is he goes away from the respectable people. Their respectability drove him out straight to the land of the unwashed hands, straight to the land of the supposedly defiled people, straight from the respectable people who should have seen him for who he was, should have gotten who he was, and straight to the place where a person who you would never think would have gotten it, got it. She calls him what they never could, son of David true healer. And she shouts at him in public for a healing. See, her vision for Jesus pushes her past the point of respectability. How about you? Hmm? How about me? Are we merely respectable today? Or do we have a vision for Jesus that pushes us past the point of even caring what family, friends, an adoring public says about us do we need him so much it pushes us past this let me give you a few examples to push your thinking a man by the name of john coltrane maybe you've heard of him hope you have legendary jazz musician Uh, during his early years he had this respectable growing public adoration even while his life was falling apart behind the scenes but he had an encounter with god and it pushed him to want to make his music an expression of the love of god through sound and as he pursued that vision it cost him publicly he was booed off stages around the world it cost him his record label he had to find another one but he encountered god he was freed from his heroin addiction and he produced what some would call what i would call the greatest single recording in jazz history called a love supreme all about the love of God. The last track of which is simply called Psalm. You should go get it. The whole album, that is. And he performed it live only one time. And as he came down off the stage, he was overheard to utter the words, Nunc Dimittis. Nunc Dimittis. It's Latin words from the, the prayer of Simeon, old Simeon, in the temple when he held Jesus Christ, the child, for the first time. And Nunc Dimittis means this. It means, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. Coltrane saying, God, if I've got you, I've got all I need. I don't need people. I've just got you. See, Coltrane pursued vision, not respectability. Vincent Van Gogh did the same. He wanted to paint for Christ. He painted what others couldn't see, but he was a complete failure in his lifetime. He died in poverty, clinically depressed. He even took his own life, having his paintings mocked, but now he's considered arguably the greatest painter who's ever lived. His stuff sells for more than any other painter. Third person, Mozart considered a great pianist, but he wanted to compose and be known as a composer uh, of his own music. But despite what the 1980s movie said, if you've seen that, he had a strong faith in God and in Christ. And he wanted to compose for his creator, but audiences, this is crazy, hated Mozart's music in his own lifetime. His own wife left him because of the shame. He died young and was buried in a pauper's grave. Now he's considered arguably the greatest composer who ever lived. Dr. King, the same thing all four of these people. They had a vision that pushed them past the point of respectability. Though, in the end, hear this, they did all gain respect. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. How about you? How about me? Have we settled for a life, come on, of respectability? Maybe let go of a life of vision where we're even willing to humiliate ourselves to be associated in public with Jesus. And listen, I'm not just pressing on you with this. I'm pressing on me and us with this as well because people will ask me from time to time. They'll say, Morgan, what do you worry about? For Mosaic, I mean, look at all the good stuff happening, all the stories, the lives. What do you worry about? Well, since you asked, here it is. I don't worry about Mosaic growing and becoming respected. I worry about it growing and becoming respectable. See, too respectable to cry out on behalf of people like this, like this woman who was crying out on behalf of her daughter. And let me tell you, if you want a vision that pushes you past the point of respectability, all you got to do is look downstream. Look at people's lives who have no voice, no one to speak for themselves, no one to cry out for themselves, no one to advocate for them. That'll push you, like this woman, out of respectability into a life of vision for Jesus. And the only antidote, listen, I know to avoid all that is simply to cry out what she did. Oh, Jesus, son of David. David, have mercy on us. Ooh, faith. Faith looks like vision, not respectability. It's the first, first tension here. Second, here we're moving on. Second, inherent and contradictory tension of a life of great faith is this. Put it like this. Great faith isn't always patient, but it is always, here's the word, persistent. Now, I know what some of you may be saying now. You're like, Morgan, I went to Sunday school. Uh, I know patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Are you, you know, shaming patience today? Or are, patient, are you a patient shamer? No, I'm not. Thank you. You know, you say, Morgan, it's something God grows in you. And yes, it is. You're going to tell me patience is a virtue. And it is. You're going to say, Morgan, I saw like patience in that like footprints in the sand, you know, poem. Or in the serenity prayer my grandparents had over the mantle or whatever. And listen, listen, I'm just kidding. You can keep all that stuff. Footprints is good. Serenity prayer, great. It helps people. All I'm saying is this. I would rather have these words, Matthew 15, 25, from this woman on my mantle. Which says this. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Because she's not just demonstrating patience. She's not patient. But she is persistent. She makes her request known. Catch this. So far, she's only gotten silence from Jesus and rejection from his followers. How'd you like to be her? I mean, can you picture this scene? She's approaching this large crowd of men, approaching a rabbi in public. Why is she alone? Likely because she's either conceived this child out of wedlock or more likely because her husband has abandoned her, leaving to care for a chronically sick child on her own. She's destitute. But more than that, she's persistent. She comes to Jesus once more and kneels. She keeps on coming, even in what feels like, come on, some of you have been there, silence from Jesus, rejection from those who claim to know him. Years ago, when we were first married, uh, my wife Carrie, uh, she got chronically sick for a, a few years. She had this illness that would simply not go away. And of course, when she got sick, we do what you know Jesus people do. What people do, we we prayed, and we prayed, and then when nothing changed, we went to the doctor, and we got yeah, we got uh, medicines, we got antibiotics, and then when nothing changed, she changed her diet, and then when nothing changed, she started taking vitamins and homeopathic stuff. And then when nothing changed, and you know this, if you've ever been chronically ill or you've lived with someone who has been, the people around you begin to do two things. Number one, they start giving you their advice. 
of what you should do, what you should eat, what you should take. And when those things don't work after a while, they start to, number two, wonder what's wrong with you. Even though you were doing the advice they gave them that was supposedly foolproof. Anyway, even in Christian circles, these things happen sometimes. Now, 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 it's always possible, yes, a person who's got something, it's because of something that they did, right? I mean, if you just smoke six packs a day and don't, can't stop, won't stop, something may happen to your body, right? You take too many trips to the Golden Corral buffet dessert place and you, know, and you don't get on the treadmill at some point, it's not good for you, right? But the point is, it's not always a person's fault. They're sick. But we heard whispers behind her back that she did not have enough faith to be healed. There's something wrong with her. And of course, those words are incredibly painful. And, but to her credit, Carrie didn't just burn out and say, you know, I'm, I've got faith. I'm going to be healed today. And then she wasn't. And so she, then she gave up. That's not what she did. Nor did she just passively sit back, call it patience, and say, you know, laissez-faire, que sera, sera, whatever is going to happen, happen. No, she combined faith plus patience, Hebrews 6.12, into persistence. And so for a couple of years, we regularly fasted and we prayed and ignored the haters, so to speak. And we went after Jesus like this woman and just asked, Lord, help us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We're just coming after you again and again. And then at one day after a longer fast breakthrough came. Don't know why, it just did, and like this woman's daughter, Carrie was instantly healed. Now, great story, but I tell you that not because we're great or because we've got some magic formula we're going to sprinkle on you next time you, you get ill. No, we, we, we're, we ain't like, like you experience sicknesses and aches and pains and a lot more aches and pains as we get older. But anyway, uh, in the face, the point is, of what felt like silence from heaven and rejection from Christ's own followers, Carrie persisted. At least that time, she was healed. And we thank God for it. Number one, great faith is not always respectable, it's, but it's always visionary. Number two, it's not always patient, but it is always persistent. But now, here, here. It's where the whole story turns, where the story reaches the seemingly contradictory climax, and where we're going to see not only the third inherent and contradictory tension of a life of great faith. But where now, I hope you'll see the very heart of Jesus Christ himself. We'll put it like this. Great faith sees the self as deeply broken and yet radically loved. Deeply broken yet radically loved. You say, how can these things, two things coexist simultaneously? Let's look. Verse 24. Here's what Jesus says after she comes back to him again. He answered... I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, what are you doing? This is not how you normally act. Normally it's like, you know, free bread for you, free healing for you. You know, you get a healing and you get a healing and you get some bread. You know, what, is he being elitist here? Is Jesus just being arrogant here? Does he really mean he only came for Jewish people? Then you think, well, no, well, throughout the Gospels, we always see Jesus saying he has come to save all that was lost. Luke 19, you see him say he was sent to die for the sins of the whole world. John 3, you see him say he's come as a savior for all peoples, not just Jewish people. So if he said all that then, why is he saying this now? Let's go a little deeper. Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now before you overreact, <laughs> consider once more who is saying this, 
where it's being said, and what happens in the story first. This is Jesus. Isn't he the most loving person who's ever lived? Say yes. Isn't he the one who stands up to injustice? Yes. Isn't he the one who speaks truth to power? Say yes. Doesn't he always see the weak and the vulnerable? Say yes. He loves without limit, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And furthermore, you can't hear his tone of voice, can you? Say no. You can't see the expression on his face, can you? The answer is no. He is, therefore, speaking as he always does with love and compassion towards her here. And now, second, remember where this is taking place and what happens in the story. Jesus is where? In Tyre, inside him, a place where he is risking his life, but not just risking his life to risk his life. He is risking his life exclusively for her because, and you have to catch this, this is the only miracle recorded in all the Gospels that he does in this place ever. In other words, he is here for her, and he came for her alone. He went there for no one else that day. He is in this place right here, right now for her and her need. And so if he is therefore standing in this spot for her, why would he be rejecting her now? He's not. He's come for her. He knows there's something amazing in her heart that the world needs to hear His disciples needed to hear, and you need to hear today. And what he's doing is laboring to bring out of her something astonishing that will be recorded for all posterity to forever honor this woman. Here's what she says. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Matthew here. Oh, you've got to see this. Not only is he contrasting her faith with the faithlessness of the Pharisees, but he's also contrasting her heart with the heartlessness of the disciples standing right there. Because if the Pharisees were faithless, the disciples here are heartless. What are they doing here? Come on. It says they are begging Jesus to send away this woman. Get rid of her. Why? Oh, because she is raising her voice in public in a foreign place. And when you are in a foreign place, in a foreign land, come on, those of you who have traveled internationally, you know what you don't want to have happen. You don't want to make a scene. You don't want people making a scene. You don't want to attract attention. You want to get in. You want to get out. You want to get on with your life without being noticed. And so what the disciples are doing here is simply selfish. They are shutting her up to save their own skin. And so, with one eye on the Pharisees' faithlessness and one eye on the disciples' heartlessness, here's what she's saying. She is saying, I will take what they don't want. I will take what they don't want. The Pharisees, they got information about you, Jesus, but they don't want you. The disciples, they've got proximity to you, but they don't want you. they got the meal, entree, dessert, appetizer. It's supposed to be for them, but I know they don't want it because they are nothing like you, Jesus. I will take just a little of what they don't want. Even the dogs, come on, get the master's crumbs. There's more even than that because in her brilliant statement, in her wise statement, we see a gospel-centered view of the self. On one hand, she references herself as a dog. Now this word, it doesn't mean a wild beast at all. It means a little pet. 
like a puppy, a small dog, a, a, a household pet. And you can see that's what she means from the context. Pet, table, crumbs, master. She's saying, I'm like, I'm like a puppy, Jesus. I'm a part of your family too, Jesus. I'm helpless like a pet, Jesus. And unless you save me, unless you provide for me, unless you feed me with the food that only you can give me from your table, I can't save myself. See, a creature in a home is dependent on a greater source than itself for its salvation. And let me tell you, that is the only way a person can come to God. Consider the burial ceremony. Maybe you've heard this. uh, The old Habsburg emperors, they were these German-Austrian emperors. They were all laid to rest in the vaults of a monastery in Vienna. And a true story goes like this. When their greatest emperor, Franz Joseph, died, uh, his uh, his grand funeral procession, this is what happened. Uh, He arrived in a casket at the closed doors of the monastery. And a herald knocked at the gate with the body behind him. And from within, the voice of the abbot, the minister there, replied, or asked, Who are you? Who knocks here? The herald replied in proxy, I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary. Abbot replied, I don't know you. Tell me who you are again. Again, the herald replied, I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Bohemia, Galicia, Maria, Dalmatia, grand duke of Transylvania, Margrave of Moravia, duke of Styria, and Corinthia. The abbot replied, we still don't know you. Who are you? Whereupon the herald knelt down and said, I am Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humbly begging for the mercy of God. Now you may enter, the abbot said, and the gates were flung open. Now listen, if that thought was a smidge offensive in that day, Ooh, it's way more offensive now, isn't it? We've got so much concentration on how good we all are, on how good the self is. So many songs about the self, shows about the self. We've got a magazine called Self. What kind of a culture has a magazine called Self? We do. Anyway, what gets retweeted are endless references to our inherent and perfection, you know, perfected goodness and you know, lack of flaws. You're just good how you are. But listen, we do have, oh, I hope you'll hear me, an inherent goodness about us. We were made so good in the image of a good God, but we are not perfect. And the Bible's consistent message, which by the way, if you'll think about it and be honest, is way more consistent with reality then our culture's message is that we are made good. Oh, there's an echo of Eden there, but we are broken and flawed and unable to save ourselves. We're like this, this, this creature. We're dependent on a greater source of salvation. And the woman knows this. I mean, look at her. Do you think given her position, given her status, given her circumstances, she could point to anything as evidence of her proof that she deserved the salvation of Christ, yet, 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 even though she calls herself, I'm like a person unable and, un, and unworthy, who does she see herself as relating to, coming to, she calls Jesus master, it's the Greek word kyrios, it means Lord, the one to whom everything belongs, she's saying, whatever I am, I still belong to you, Jesus, I am all that I am, and yet, I belong to you, she says, I'm not worthy, And yet she's saying, I am worthy because you, Jesus, are the kind of master who receives someone like me. 
She's saying, I don't deserve it because of who I am. And yet she's saying, I do deserve it because of who you are. And right there, right there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it because of who we are, but we do deserve it. We can receive it because of who he is. And look what it brings out of Jesus now. He says, oh woman, great, large is your faith. Be it done for you. As you, what's the word? Desire. You think Jesus cares about your desires? Come on, he does. This woman sees she's deeply broken and yet radically loved. You say, well, how in the world does she get all of this? How could she see all of this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how she saw all of this, but it's remarkable. But I know how you can. And if you're here today and you're saying, how could I see all of this? You can. Like this. Just like for this Canaanite woman and her daughter, Jesus Christ left his own home, left his own safe place, and came for us in our need in a land not his own. He came into our world and has heard our cries. He's experienced pain in life, trauma of losing his own family and his friends. And in the garden, in the night he was betrayed, he prayed what he said to this woman here. He says, not my will, Father. But yours be done. You desire for me to carry all their sins. You desire for me uh, to carry all their burdens and diseases and infirmities. Be it done for you, Father, as you desire. And he went to the cross. But when he cried out for mercy and help, he only got silence from heaven and rejection from his followers. He didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. And he got what we deserve. So now we can get what he deserved, salvation, healing, blessing, acceptance, affirmation. And when you see this, that Jesus had to die for you, it humbles you. It just humbles you. But when you see that he was glad to die for you, now you can be radically loved, affirmed beyond the stars, and you can drop all the pretense, all the desire, the push for respectability from people that don't even matter anyway. And you can be persistent even in the face of overwhelming odds and difficulty because you know God's heart for you. You see it right here with this woman. She had, she had a oh, tremendous vision, incredible persistence. Why? Because she grasped the gospel. She's deeply flawed, yet radically loved by the King of Heaven. And you can be too. George Herbert, British poet, put it like this. I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep, but now my griefs to sing. Oh, he suffered like this woman and he wrote this. I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep, but now he brings my griefs to sing.